Hey, hey, welcome back. Welcome back. Let's get into it. Let's get into it. We have been looking at Reformed theology, specifically the five points of Calvinism with that fun little acronym TULIP, T-U-L-I-P, T, total depravity, U, which is what we looked at last time, unconditional election. And we said that unconditional election is the idea that God from before the foundations of the earth chose those whom he desires for salvation, not because of anything in them, no goodness in them, no merit in them, but purely out of the sheer grace of his will. God could have saved all because he had the authority to do so. He could have saved none because he was under no obligation to do so, but he didn't do either. He chose to elect some to salvation unconditionally, meaning that this choice, his election, was not determined by or conditioned upon anything that mankind would do. That's unconditional election in a nutshell. Today, I want to interact with four big objections to this doctrine because I know this just raises a bazillion questions and issues and problems and objections. So let's t- let's take a look at the at the big four, or at least the big four that I could come up with. So here we go. Let's look at one of these at a time. Objection number one. This idea of unconditional election, it just simply leads to spiritual arrogance. You think God chose you? I mean, if you're tracking with me, then you might be thinking, wait, wait, you Calvinists think you're the chosen ones? If you actually believe this, this will make you the most self-righteous, narcissistic, arrogant people on the planet. That's the objection. That's the issue. What's the response? Well, my response would be something like this. If by believing the doctrine of election, you become arrogant, you have not understood it at all. You have completely missed it. Because at the core of this biblical doctrine is that he chose me precisely because I couldn't choose him on my own. And when you realize that he didn't choose you because of any quality or value in you— That has to humble you to the ground. You have to admit that you have no moral superiority to people around you, and that includes pedophiles, terrorists, rapists, racists, on and on and on. This doctrine humbles you to the point where you can say there is nothing inherently or intrinsically in me that's better than anyone else. I heard a story that uh, Tim Keller told uh, about a time when he was in seminary and he was kind of learning about some of these ideas. And there was a lady in his class that was in the same lecture. She was hearing some of the stuff taught by the, by the professor and she obviously disagreed with some of the stuff. And so she raised her hand and said, Professor, I cannot believe this. This is unfair. Why doesn't God just choose everyone? I, 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 don't, I don't buy it. I believe in free will. And the professor said something like this in response. Okay, yes, there are problems if you believe this, but there are even bigger problems if you don't. So so think of it like this. Why do you believe and your roommate doesn't? 
So here was this woman in this class. She had a roommate. She was a Christian. Her roommate was not. And the professor was like, okay, why do you, why are you a Christian and your roommate is not a Christian? And the woman said, well, because I accepted Christ and my roommate didn't. And the professor goes, yes. Okay, great. But why did you accept Christ? And the lady goes, well, because I repented of my sin and my roommate wouldn't. And the professor goes, yes. Okay, great. But why did you repent and your roommate wouldn't? And the lady goes, well, because I was willing to admit that I was a sinner and she wasn't. And the professor goes, yes. Okay, but why were you willing to admit that you were a sinner and your roommate uh, wasn't? And, and so on and on and on they go. And, and what he's getting, what he's trying to get her to see is this. If you believe that the only difference between you and your roommate is in God's grace, that God is the one that has opened up your heart and he hasn't opened up your roommates, at least not yet. If that is the only difference, then you don't have any basis on which to disdain her. You have no grounds whatsoever to feel superior to anyone anymore. But if you believe that, that the difference between you and your roommate was that you were a little bit better a little wiser, a little more humble, a little bit more spiritual. If you believe that the difference is not located in God, but it's located in something in you, then now you have some grounds from which to look down your nose on other people. And so what the professor was saying was this, if you buy into the doctrine of election, unconditional election, okay, sure, there are some problems with it, but but they're all intellectual problems. They're all kind of academic in nature. But if you deny the doctrine of unconditional election, you have way more problems. And they're personal problems. They're spiritual, practical problems. Because if at some rock bottom level, you are superior to other people because you had the willpower to believe, or you had the spiritual sensitivity to believe, or you had the integrity or the intelligence to believe, this is going to work itself out in your life in all kinds of nasty ways, and you will feel justified in looking down your nose at other people who don't believe or who can't summon the spiritual manpower like you did. There are problems if you believe this, sure, but there are way more problems if you don't. Okay, objection number two goes like this. Election is unfair. This idea of unconditional election is just unfair. How can he look at certain people and say, uh, sorry, but you're not on the list? That's the objection. What's the response? Well, if you were to phrase the question in this particular way or the objection this way, then, then it shows in some ways that you don't really understand the premise. Because the idea of fairness, the whole idea of fairness, if you think about it, it's based on merit. Fairness is getting what you deserve. And the Bible is clear, nobody deserves salvation. In fact, I would just say it's a good rule of thumb. Don't argue for God. Don't argue with God for him to be fair. I mean, if you're a convicted and condemned criminal, you should not plead for the judge's justice, his fairness, but rather you should plead for his mercy. 
the idea here is, is for God to be fair and to give us what we deserve, it's eternal punishment. We don't want that. So for God to exclude some people from salvation, that is in no way unfair unless you maintain that God was under some obligation to provide salvation for sinners in the first place. Here's what uh, R.C. Sproul, this is is how he put it. R.C. Sproul says this, grace that is owed is not grace. If God owes you grace, then it's no, we're no longer talking about grace. We're talking about payment. We're, we're talking about due. And so the question is not, why did God save some and not others? I think the better question is, why did God save anyone at all? In fact, you should know the Bible directly addresses this objection. In Romans chapter 9, verse 14 and 15, it, it, it reads this. What then shall we say? Is God unjust or is God unfair? And Paul writes, not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Grace that is owed to someone is not grace any longer. Here here may be a, uh, a helpful way to think of it. Let's say that you and your four friends are on your way to go and rob a bank at gunpoint. You've got all of these guns, you've got your ski masks, and you're driving up to the bank, and you're and right before you walk in, let's say I tackle you. I just come out of nowhere, and I tackle you, and I prevent you from carrying out this evil act. And so I stop you, but the other four go in. And let's say they end up getting arrested by the cops. The police show up and they get arrested and taken away and they are sentenced to prison for life. Do they have any grounds to be mad at me because I didn't happen to tackle them? No, they they have no grounds to be upset with me. It was their decision to go in and rob the bank. They are the ones that are morally culpable and they got what they deserve. And out of complete mercy, I prevented you from getting what you deserved. All analogies break down at some point, of course, but hopefully you see the basic idea. Fairness is not what sinful people should want. Objection number three goes like this. What if someone wants to believe in Jesus, but isn't admitted into heaven simply because they weren't elect? Well, election does not exclude anybody from the kingdom of God that wants in. I think that we, you know, the confusion is we tend to think that when you hear the idea about election, we think it works like this. There's this hot club everybody's trying to get into, and there's this huge line to get in. And unfortunately, there's only this VIP list that God is drafting up. And if you aren't on the list, then God closes the door in your face and you're pounding on the door wanting in, but he won't let you in because you're not on the list. And you so desperately want in, but he won't let you in. 
But that's not the picture the Bible paints. The reality is everybody is running in the opposite direction. Nobody wants in the hot nightclub. Romans 3 verses 10 through 18 makes this emphatically clear. No one seeks God. That's what the Bible says. No one is seeking after God. The the good news of salvation is that God is the one that seeks after us. So the biblical idea is that only the elect are the people that will want in because God's the one that first changes the thing that they want. He changes our hearts. He changes the thing in us that wants God in the first place. John 6, 37 says this, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. You see that idea there. All that the Father gives me, that's all the elect, all that the Father gives me, they will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. He will never slam the door in your face. Objection number four says this. Okay. What about when the Bible says that, quote, it is not God's will that any should perish? That's Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9. And what about the place in the Bible that says that God desires for all men to be saved? That's 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3 through 4. These verses seem to contradict the whole idea of unconditional election. God doesn't want anyone to perish. God desires for all people to say, be saved. There you go. So, what's the response? Well, if God desires for all men to be saved, which is what 1 Timothy 2, 3 and 4 says, but he does not actually save all men, then apparently what God says he wants and what he does are in conflict with each other. So what do we do with that? Well, the the Arminian response goes something like this. Well, God's salvation must therefore be conditional upon man's decision to believe. God does want salvation for all men, but he doesn't have the power to bring that reality about. It's not up to him. It's up to us. It's up to men and women. It's up to mankind. And so this is this picture of God kind of wringing his hands and hoping, wishing that people believe in him, but he can't do anything about it. But the problem with that is this, is that this way of thinking falls into the same trap that you were hoping to get out of in the first place. Because you still have a situation, God has still created a world where people would not believe, which is in direct contradiction with what his will is, what he says he desires. So then the question is, is God weak? Is salvation just subject to fate? What do we do with that? Well, I think the way that you resolve this is by recognizing that there's, there are different meanings to the language of God's desire or God's will in Scripture. Uh, let me give you three, three different kind of ways that this language is used. First, there is God's decretive will. That's a fun word you don't say every day. Decretive. This is basically the idea of his sovereign you could say his efficacious will. 
again, all these words are big and old school and clunky, but it, the idea here is that whatever God's, whatever God wills comes to pass. Whatever happens in the world, you could say is a result of his decretive will. Okay, but second, there's another aspect to it. There's his prescriptive will. You, you can kind of hear this language of his prescriptions, his his uh, commands. This is referring to his 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 law. It, it's God's will for you that you don't murder and that you don't lie and that you don't worship other gods and etc. And then the third aspect or third definition of God's will, you, you could say it's his pleasing will, that which is pleasing to him. God is pleased by your acts of faith. He's pleased by your good works. So if you go back to that Second Peter passage that says, it is not God's will that any should perish. Which idea, which form or definition of God's will is it referring to? His decretive will, his prescriptive will, or his pleasing will? If it were his decretive will, it would mean God is not willing that any should perish. And if that were true, then no one would perish. But that, that's obviously wrong because the Bible clearly says, says that some do perish. This idea would be uh, universalism. Everyone is saved, but it, it can't be what this means because um, the Bible emphatically makes the case that that's not true. It, it overreaches. It ends up proving too much. So it can't be his decretive will. Okay, well, what about his prescriptive will when it says God does not, uh, it is not God's will that any should perish? This would mean God does not allow for anyone to perish. In other words, perishing is forbidden. It's sinful. It's wrong. So if people perished, God would have to punish them for their sin of perishing by allowing them to perish. <laughs> but okay, how can you perish when you've already perished? I mean, this, again, okay, it makes no sense. Can't be that. Can't be the decretive will. Can't be the prescriptive will. So the only other option left is his pleasing will, which means God takes no delight in the perishing of people. Punishment of the wicked does not bring about joy to God in a certain sense. It's kind of like this idea of a judge having to sentence his own son to prison. And if you think about this for a second, uh, because, I mean, this is where things kind of get crazy mysterious again. God's desire is that all men should be saved, that none should perish, that's, that's very much like his desire that I be kind and loving towards my wife. It is his will that I, I obey his commands. That's 1 John 3, 23. But he doesn't force us to obey his commands. And it's obvious upon looking at our own lives and the world around us that God's revealed will does not always come to fruition in this fallen world. God's decrees, his decretive will... Those things are always fulfilled, and here's the mystery. Uh, we're not always aware of what those de decrees are. They remain a secret for God alone. That's Deuteronomy 29, 29. But I think you can say confidently, God takes no delight in the perishing of anyone. So those are some responses, however limited, however confusing they were, to some 
big objections of this idea. And again, I know there's more. You have more questions, more issues. But we're working through this as best that we can. And, and let me just give you one last thought. This is a, a, a final quote from John Stott talking about predestination and unconditional election, these ideas. He says this, quote, Predestination promotes humility, not arrogance. It promotes responsibility, not apathy. Holiness, not complacency. Mission, not privilege. Those are good words, wise words, and worth thinking on in light of this discussion. 